0: Well, you know, after this recording I got to go to the uh the doctors for a somewhat annualish kind of visit and you know, I was thinking other other than the obvious of just like it's inconvenient and like, you know, US healthcare and all that uh, stuff. Like, man, there is just something like inherently frustrating and annoying about going to see the doctor. And I I just don't know what it is. You got any ideas? What's your relationship with going to see the doctor?
1: Yeah. Last Tuesday I had my first physical since I think I was 30. So you know, my doctor <laughs> <laughs> visits have been few and far between as so I, I stayed somewhat healthy. So if you're always a little nervous, you know, stripped down, they immediately have all the control of the situation as I'm yeah. just sitting here in a weird gown, but, yeah. uh that's fine. It's nice to get the results. So at least you're, uh, you know, that part's the good part of it. And I had a dentist appointment two days later. So my body is, mm. uh, Now rejecting all doctors for the next couple of
0: months. Yeah. Now the dentist, that's a whole other thing, man. That's, that's a, yeah. I don't know what it is. It's just like, uh, uh, it's just, it's just not, it's just doesn't, uh, it's not, it's not that I'm afraid of results or anything. I mean, maybe it is just, it's annoying and inconvenient. Like, you know, it's good to like, go get your, your, as they say, lab work done so that you don't have to do it afterwards and you can have one appointment. And of course I didn't do that. Right. So now I'm going to have to, I, I don't know there's, there's something wrong with that. There, I mean, are you an eye doctor guy? Do you like the eye doctor? Oh no, no. I don't go to the eye doctor. I, uh, yeah. I, I do need to get my LASIK renewed. See, that's that I, I like that. That's I'm looking forward to that. That's a good transactional thing that has clear results, so to speak, no pun intended. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's just uh, a lot more, uh, straightforward. Whereas like, I mean, I feel like, you know, I've never, once, once I, uh, uh, stopped going to the, uh, the kid doctor. What do they call that? A pe- pediatricist? Uh, like I never have well, had yeah. like a relationship. Yeah, I've <laughs> never had a relationship with a doctor. You know what I mean? It's it's just like retail doctoring. Like I might as well go down to the uh, the CVS and just like have someone tell me to eat more fruits and vegetables and that you know I'm probably you know should be doing something different as I get older. And it's just it's just frustrating. I don't I don't know. It's it's annoying. It feels like a waste yeah. of time. Well, I'm looking forward to my doctor. looking for
1: more intimacy. That's good.
0: <laughs> something. Yeah. Like, you know, just go read my Twitter feed or something and figure it out. I'm, I'm sure that look on in Instagram. Look at these things I'm eating and and uh, and blood work. I don't know. And they always tell you like what your blood pressure is, as if that means anything. It might as well be like, it's sort of like, it's like, it's like if you were like, uh, you know, you were like the the VP of you know, running a business and some some developer came and told you like some error code that happened. It's just like I don't I don't know what that means. What do I yeah. do about that? Error code thirty five A. Great. Here's a raise. Right? Like it's just uh, it's just just incomprehensible junk. So on that note, things are looking pretty good it's like the, the, the start pilot, of this year. <laughs> yeah, it's like when a pilot tells you
1: the wind speed on the plane. Like I don't know what to do with any of this information. Oh, just yeah. Do your
0: job, doctor slash pilots. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fun. That's good stuff. That's, that's maybe a good analogy because like my relationship with the pilot talking is pretty much the volume and my proximity to the speaker that his voice is coming out of. Right. Like Mm -hmm. all, all I really experience is, is it really loud or is it quiet so I can tune it out? I think that's a good metaphor for my relationship with doctors. It's just like, you know, get, get me to the place. I don't really want a, a bunch of jibber-jabber, as, That's uh, as right. he used to say. Love doctors, yes. the great people. That's what I'm here for, good <laughs> <in> analogies. <laughs> well, in, in, a, in a completely other area. You know, I, I'm, I'm excited you pulled this out because I saw the headlines for it You know, as, as, as I'm there, as I'm sure you are scanning the headlines, seeing what's going on. And uh, I don't know. I didn't have mm-hmm. much to think or say about it, but it looks like Google is, is pulling more undersea cable. So what, what's the deal with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, remember that you know Google's arguably one of the largest telcos in the world based on the network they own. So they're, you know, putting down some more cable, connecting more sites. They announced I think five new cloud expansion locations for next year. So interesting to see them kind of announcing what 2018 looks like, with which includes owning the bandwidth, which you shouldn't underrate because that a, that's a big deal when you own the fiber itself.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think that's true. I mean, back when I, as, as I'm, I'm sure you were in this position as well, having been uh, at uh, CenturyLink, but back when I was doing cloud strategy, there was, uh, dark horse is the wrong analogy, but the uh, maybe the, the, the iceberg under the water or the pee under the mattress is always like networking. It's pretty important, man. Like, it seemed like uh, it was an interesting asset to have. And I was just, I was just looking up uh, uh, one of those charts that shows like cumulative uh, CapEx, at like uh, Amazon and um, Google and Microsoft. It's kind of like, it's it's very imprecise, but um, uh, it's sort of a proxy of how much money you need to spend uh, to have public cloud. And um, yeah, I mean, building your own global network, probably part of that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which, yeah, it's not not cheap. Yeah, but, uh,
1: You think the benefits of being able to control the latency and not forcing people through six different ops as they go through three different providers... That's a quality of service thing that maybe other clouds can tolerate, but it seems like Google doesn't want to.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They need to. They need to pull some of that cable into my neighborhood here. I, I only get like uh, eight, <laughs> eighteen megadoodles in my house, which is crazy. It's absurd. Like I get I get maybe like thirty on my uh, LTE network from the same provider, which I won't name. But uh, I, I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> like they could just install a cell tower here, and uh, and and then I'd be fine. They don't need to pull yeah. this cable. Sheesh! Yeah, I thought you knew people. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta cash that in. And in, in Austin, they only give uh, Google Fiber to the hipsters down in South Austin. It very sad. Should move down there. I'll uh, I'll downsize my house by a fourth and up my cost by five just so I can get faster than that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, also, you know, you pointed this out. I noticed. I, I remember running in this uh, this guy. They hired the uh, the Salesforce dev, developer relations head to uh to work for them over there at google now that's right
1: yeah they, they continue i mean there's there seems to be this battle for evangelism that's going on microsoft's hired a strong team google not willing to cede any territory there continues to add smart folks so adding adam who used to as you mentioned run dev evangelism things at uh, salesforce now it's like vp of evangelism things at google so another good hire it's good to see uh Google share
0: that message. I, th- I think he's, he might have been one of the people who uh, witnessed one of the more embarrassing uh, epiphanies I had when I was an analyst, which is Salesforce is just a big database. And when you're talking about development, you wrap customized forms around it. and And like, it took me a long time to understand that like, it was just, you just got a giant database that's customized to doing this stuff. And then after that, it's pretty straightforward, all this, what all the, the, the type of development you do around it is. And I remember I was saying that to some Salesforce person, and they just were kind of nodding with a confused look on their face, like, yeah, yeah didn't didn't you know that? So... <laughs>
1: Yeah, how good would Adam he seems like a patient guy, so yeah. if I you know just entertained you, that's fine. That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He was always very nice. And then also, uh, you know, Ashley, who who worked on my team for I think maybe uh like nine hours or so before going to work <laughs> at our friends at Microsoft, she had a pretty good write up uh about what exactly, you know, developer advocates do and, and things like that, which is if you're interested in that kind of thing, or evangelists as they used to be called, it's uh it's a nice write up. Developer Advocate is a is a pretty uh pretty descriptive phrase Mm. for that i remember i i I was visiting with some family recently and i was telling them that uh that we used to call it evangelism and they had kind of this raised eyebrow look on their face just a little too appropriating of the uh usual religious things or something but yeah anyway so that's that's a nice write-up if you're interested in that and then also uh you know uh I, i was reading through the uh the speaking of google they have a uh What is it? Would you say it is it a machine learning or just image recognition? I guess it's both, but they have a new service out that's basically like drag and drop uh, image recognition at the very least. uh, That that looks actually pretty handy.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're saying this is the first of many to come, so I think they're just trying to get to this kind of no code or not even entry level because that probably cheapens it too much, but like I don't need to have data scientists on staff to do some basic image recognition. So, you know, maybe products in inventory or people or what have you. So I think that's pretty cool as you, you know, I hate the democratization term, but that's what's kind of happening here is you're simplifying machine learning for people. So it seems like it's worthwhile to uh, add your name to the list of people who want to try it out
0: yeah yeah and and it, like i've been uh i still haven't found that option where i can find out what uh painting i look like in the google arts and culture thing i guess it's not available in austin oh i don't understand why oh yeah i think
1: there was something about that yeah i read that that specifically i think it was texas or others if there's rules about how web companies could use your data then
0: those mm-hmm. apps get blocked that mm-hmm. makes sense that's interesting because you know like well uh to to use it as a, as a foil for the for the uh that thing. So I've been using Google photos for a while, which is great, right? It has this awesome, um, I guess, I guess it's, it's probably is a good example. I, I'm guessing of like machine learning in action because it somehow figures out how to cluster things. There's literally a collection of albums called things. And it figures out like, here's all the common things you have and people that you have, it clusters people. And when I was looking through the, uh, that Google, uh, arts and culture or whatever app, like it kind of looks like a reskinned, google photos with like a blog added to it and it is like it's it's a nice application if you're into like mm-hmm. seeing frida cole's like wardrobe and uh other things like that it's uh it's fun to search through but it it does give you some inspiration of of like how would we use this kind of technology uh in, in whatever our own businesses may be and i think i think the idea of having uh, to use to use probably a word that as, as someone on the periphery of, of technical marketing, you would never want to use to simplify uh, and create a simplification of something as complicated as ML definitely seems good. Or we could democratize it. That's fine, too. No, there you go. No, no need to say it's simple. But, mm-hmm. and they're, and therefore of uh, lesser value for the cynical people. And then and so mm-hmm. the uh my my wife there's a there's a fun uh crossover from normal to nerdland. She was very upset with Amazon that they haven't just named the city that they're going to have their new headquarters. And I shouldn't say upset. She was just more like what's the deal? Like why wouldn't they be picking? But they have narrowed it down to uh to 20 places. I'm not going to mm-hmm. read all of them. Uh but you know, so that's that's fun. But I wanted to ask you, so this comes up every now and then. There's sort of like yeah. Seattle has mixed feelings about Amazon. But like what's mm-hmm. the deal with that?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I work in downtown Seattle, that's where the pivotal office is. And and no doubt I mean, I think a new high rise is going up that Amazon rented the whole thing or leased the whole thing. So I mean they've taken over the city, but so has Google. So have plenty of companies. I mean, downtown Seattle, I think the uh one of those those giant cranes. It's one of the crane capitals of the world, everyone just mm. building new stuff. So you know, I think there's this love hate to pay. Hey, it drives up housing prices because housing's crazy around here now and increases traffic and all those things. But what was interesting is once they announced that HQ2 idea, then all the city leaders kind of descend on campus. Oh my gosh, we're sorry if you thought that all of our hostile activities meant we didn't like you here. So <laughs> it was uh, somewhat amusing to see everyone come hat in hand back to Amazon. But I think that ship has sailed and they've got this list of cities, which, hey, you're on the list. Good Congrats, Austin. That's right. So Just- you've, uh, I mean, I think that the funny thing is this is, I mean, pretty much a list of major U.S. cities, minus Toronto. So, I mean, it's not like this is novel. They didn't throw out some weird city in New Mexico. Like, this is kind of where companies do business. So, I guess congrats on owning the news cycle for yeah. a couple of days.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess Phoenix isn't in there, right? Is that uh, – but
1: – Sure. I mean, mistake yeah. was those that they missed, you know, that people were disappointed in. But, I mean, for the most part, if you're going to narrow down 20 cities, clearly Newark's is going to be on that list. Yeah, any of these cities I can make That's fun right. of, I don't know. I mean, it's a good list of cities. It's fine. It's yeah, places yeah. You, would, you would put a headquarters.
0: Yeah, you know, up up several layers in the uh, conceptual stack, if you will. It's sort of like an ongoing, uh, I don't know. I would call it one of my theories and that I haven't done any sort of research. But, the, you know, the theory being, as, as I've been traipsing around, visiting more and more people over the past three years, like there's like technical people and programmers everywhere. Like in every every major city, they're like chock full of them. one because there's always like, a ton of banks and insurance companies who are like in Phoenix, right? There's like, you wouldn't think it as, as just someone who doesn't follow this stuff, but there's a ton of insurance uh, stuff in Phoenix and therefore it people. And like, so yeah, there's people who can computer pretty much everywhere (laughs) in in major cities. And, and, and it is, I think, um, I think maybe in the era of, I don't know what era this was, the era of like IBM being everywhere. That was sort of, not an issue right i mean like they're in they're in all sorts of places and some of that's driven by acquisitions that they did over the past 30 40 years but others of it is just like you know you would never guess or or whatever like austin a huge part of austin being a tech company not all of it by far but it's because ibm had a huge campus here for a long time and so um it's also interesting to think about like the maturity of Amazon as a company that now they're going to just have campuses everywhere, even more so than the, they do, but like major mm-hmm. ones spread everywhere. Which we'll we'll see how people react to that as as far as how it uh, shapes things around. It's it's always it's always uh, uh, a little scary as like you know a well off tech industry person to comment on uh, changing cities around, but right. I don't I don't know what to do. It helped Austin out a lot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I mean, it's good to spread it out. I mean, the one thing that's almost the joke in Seattle is because Amazon doesn't really allow remote work is mm. that you kind of have to come to Seattle. So if you've ever worked in this city in tech, you've been called by Amazon because they've either just completely drained the market up here. Like everyone who wants to work there at this point works there. And then, you know, can you keep moving people up to the Pacific Northwest? Like you just, it gets a point where you've saturated Kind of what's available. So it makes sense to go pick, go put something on the East Coast, go put something in Texas, go put something in the Midwest. As long as you're buying an airport, you're in great shape.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when some urban planners need to do some Monte Carlo stuff on like, uh, how would it affect Seattle and other cities? And because you raise an interesting point of like, well, if there's a big issue in Seattle, then maybe we can bleed some of that off. Not only we can benefit Seattle by bleeding off all the whatever badness that people might think there is, and then also help some other city out. Weird, weird, exciting dilemma to have. So, speaking of That's negativity, I, I don't think we've good talked good. about the uh, the specter and meltdown stuff on this podcast, right? Because it's first first yeah. uh, uh, podcast we've recorded this year. And uh, right. I mean, I, th- I think it's I think it's it's pretty well covered at this point. But but uh, you uh, you dug out uh, an overview that I think is highly relevant to the to the cloud native world. What what was written up in it? Yeah, it was a good piece
1: by Kurt who talked about kind of patching hygiene. And this idea of you know, like this thing, like this will always happen, right? There's going to be another one of these this year. There's always going to be these sort of things. And what this continually points out is most companies just have a bad patching hygiene that it takes months, if not more. Like the joke is by the time they get the Spectre patch, they're just patching Heartbleed, which was when, like a year or two ago? So how are you thinking about, you know, if I can't patch a few hundred images, how am I also going to patch a few thousand containers? Like there's all these different challenges Of How do I deal with patching? And for the most part, it seems like it is an industry. We're just not very good at it. So the point of this piece was a bit of sometimes you need platform sort of things that can take care of some of this for you where you're not manually rolling through servers, but the platform's doing that. So whether that's Bosch and Cloud Foundry or whatever sorts of tools that you've got, it seems like that's a really worthwhile investment this year because this won't go away and you can i i can imagine there's a few enterprises where they've had to put major projects on hold so they could get all hands on deck to go patch a few thousand machines like that's not going to stop so either you get ahead of it or you're going to keep sidetracking yourself with patching exercises
0: yeah yeah it was it was making me think that uh i mean in, unless you're of a certain ilk of it people few things could be more boring than patching <laughs> as, as as a topic but but it does point to the need of uh, what would you call it? Is it a, is it a functional requirement? May, you know, probably given all the uh, security stuff nowadays, mm. that actually is a pretty mm. important thing to, uh, stress out about, like in considering what your, your projects or as we like to call them products or something, what your what the initiatives that you have in it are and the new things that you're bringing in is to have a pretty thorough understanding of how do I patch this thing and, and what do I do with it? And it, it reminds me of a, a question I got in an EBC from someone who, uh, I think, I think they were like, they were something like the VP of patching. They were the VP of infrastructure, but it, <laughs> it sounded like they had become the VP of patching. Uh, um, and, and they were asking, you know, how, how Pivotal Cloud Foundry helps out with patching. And, and it felt like I was not helping them as much as possible because what they really wanted mm-hmm. to know is like, of all of IT, how do I patch it? <laughs> like, like, how does this address it? Whereas, you know, obviously the, uh, the benefits of, of the way that Cloud Foundry does stuff works. If you're running cloud foundry and, you know, I guess, I guess nowadays, if you're running a Kubernetes cluster and and everything, but it is, I think, I think there is a a, a pattern to bring out of there to be, to say like the same idea of being able to very quickly patch things should probably be a very important requirement for whatever you have. And it probably, there's probably a huge amount of business value now to like making sure you can do that. So maybe don't ship some new stuff until you solve that problem uh, in in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. But it is, uh, it, it's it gets back yeah. to the old, the old again another theory of mine thing about security is like the way to fix security is to actually do it, uh, which you know <laughs> <laughs> that, that comes up a lot in uh, how to improve IT. So yeah, uh,
1: I think we have a blog post coming out on uh, from Pivotal just on some things of how you can kind of act forward. But I think for most, you know, if you're a listener here, the thing you can do today is every you know part of your sourcing contracts when you're bringing in new software or or hardware. One of your primary questions would be, "How do I patch this thing?" and can I do it through automation? And mm-hmm. don't buy any hardware or software that you can't patch easily because it's going to cause so much heartache later. You can do that right now.
0: Yeah, well, just uh, two more things you can look up in the show notes, but that I'll reference. So, uh, uh, just some some stuff I was doing recently last week. You know, there, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of consternating and hand wringing over like how uh, tech companies are like destroying civilization. I don't know if 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 you and the listeners have read that, and often what they really mean is how people are upset about Facebook. They they it often uh, just amounts to that. Like last week, The Economist had uh, a couple of uh, well, one that they based their one of the leader stories off of. A, I think I think it was a uh, a fun piece to read, kind of summarizing it all. And uh, we talked about it in in a, in a podcast that I did last week, and and I have a little silly newsletter I do, and I found myself writing a rant about it. But I think it is. Like, I normally, I don't really like consumer tech stuff because I just don't, I guess. But I I think it is, like, worthwhile kind of, like, if you don't pay attention to that stuff, kind of uh, getting into into it a little bit to understand it. uh, Like, what people are concerned about when, Mm -hmm. just because these conversations come up and you don't want it to distract from uh, talking about more interesting things like patching. (laughs) <laughs> but uh so you know you know you right. that that was that was in our uh software defined talk thing uh last week if you want to look that up and then also there's been a um kind of a flurry of of market sizing and spending things coming out which i'll put links to in the show notes at pivotal.io slash podcast but just on the whole i think that the thing to pull from this is is if you look at uh, surveys that have been coming in and forecasts it looks like people are pretty consistently saying they're going to be spending more on uh, IT this year and and in the future which is encouraging cuz you know improving takes money last time i checked mm-hmm. so uh, there's a lot of people <laughs> who are who are into that so then the uh you oh, the, yeah. there's just the two of us here we, we we have a guest that we'll get back on to uh to talk about uh, it was actually going to be about uh, talking about uh, azure stack and things like that but She'll be on, uh, she had to, I think she had to like go to Singapore or something, but uh, we'll have her on to talk about that uh, in a future episode. But in the meantime, I think, I think one of our, uh, one of your evergreen topics based on the age of the primary content you sent me <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> was basically discussing like the idea of, uh, and to put it in my, my summary, like what's the deal with open source as a business nowadays? And, and to add, to add a bit of my spin to it, which I think. Uh, watching this over the decades which is interesting is there's always this standing question of what what does software companies owe the open source world uh operating in them and um you know you you pulled a a good a good piece from uh matt assay he's one of the few people probably like myself who would write the word stupid in a tech news article so that's fun and uh there's several other pieces like Mm -hmm. there's always the um like you have one of these from uh, James Governor over at, Re- over at Red Monk. There's kind of surveying uh, based on GitHub. It used to be on SourceForge or whatever. But whatever public records of repositories, the involvement of various companies in open source, which is interesting. But, you know, so that's my setup of the topic. But like, what, what were you thinking in this area of like, uh, what's the deal with commercialized open source and how it sort of relates to a good way of operating a software company nowadays?
1: Yeah, so it'd be fun to gab with you about this. As you mentioned, I mean, there's been a number of pieces about this topic for a long time, not just over the last few months. But, you know, as I look at Pivotal, we do a lot of open source here, whether that's things like Data, Greenplum, and Gemfire, or Cloud Foundry, or of course, Spring, RabbitMQ, now Kubernetes, making some contributions there. And so, you know, we, we get recognized that we Pivotal does a lot for our size, but it just makes me think about like, what is the role of open source? Are you doing it because you're nice to people? Are you doing it because you want to make money off it? I think Matt's piece was, hey, Amazon doesn't owe us anything, that they're making open source easier to use by delivering it as a service. Who cares if their contribution back is a little spotty? And still, they contribute a lot, but given their size, probably not as much as you see from Google and others. So there's just this conversation of kind of why do you open source? Why do companies participate in this? And What's interesting is if you look at, I think, most open source at this point has a corporate sponsor. So as much as we like to think of this people toiling around on some mission to change the world, it seems like most major open source projects are funded by people's salaries being paid for by corporations and hope to have some benefit as a result of that. I don't think that's a bad thing. It just seems like we don't talk about that a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think that the last part you mentioned is, I mean, that's the way uh... – Man, I don't, I don't know since how long, but the the way I generally think of open source is, or or I should say, the last point that you made is a good uh, result of how I've tend to view open source and observe people using it, which is just like it's a good means of production, right? Like it's if if you want to write software, yep. it's, I mean, there, there's a, there's almost three cases. I'll see if I remember them, but the first case, working backwards, is like and and. Is this true i I you know, a lot of a lot of what pivotal does fits into this category and and Red Hat and all sorts of other people i b m and and facebook and google uh and Microsoft is if you're going to do software, it's probably a good idea to start with the assumption that it's going to be open source and then come up with the case why it should be closed source if you're not going to do it just because there's not a huge amount of like tactical money that you lose and strategy that that you lose by open sourcing something. It's not necessarily a recipe for uh, killing your business. Um, I I think most people are over that idea of it. and Mm -hmm. The benefits that you get of one internal facing is, and I don't know if this is true, but it feels like it's true, is most developers would like to work on open source things. (laughs) And so you have a good morale boost and motivation for your employees to do things well. And I think there's a bit of like positive shame in action. And you would see this a lot in the late 2000s when companies would want to open source things. And one, they would have to sort out like IP they had licensed and if they could open source that. And, you know, this is always like comically for me, like Java would be like, I don't know, we have some fonts that we license so we can't open source stuff. It was probably more complicated than that, but it's kind of a farcical way of putting it. But you know they do worry about the quality of their code and making sure that it's presentable uh, rather than just sort of hidden stuff and then and then, you know, finally, I think just for the internal production, it is genuinely helpful to like have people contribute back to it. So you know we have in the cloud foundry world, there's instances of uh, of enterprises or organizations who are not software companies they come up with something and they contribute it back and it, and it gets folded into the broader cloud foundry thing which is incredibly useful it's better than just filing some ticket somewhere and then i think sure. you know the other bucket that i see people having is uh i don't know a more positive word than like well let, let let's let's call it you know yesterday's success <laughs> which you know and in, in, in our in our realm of the world like we have uh, the spring framework which started maybe in the early the first half of the 2000s, if I remember. And as was the mm-hmm. style at the time, you would do that as open source. And it's just continued to be open source. And probably if we started it today, it would be open source as well. But it's just lingered from that era. And that's a good demonstration of of how things transitioned, I think, from the first thing, which is sort of like, I don't know what you would call it, uh, <clears throat> philosophically open source, just like and I don't. I think this is the the thing that least exists nowadays uh, than, than it used to. Is just like this notion of uh, everything should be open source. Like it should just be. And if it's not, it's evil, and and it, and it's bad. And I don't think that happens that much anymore. You see it kind of. You see echoes of it in sort of like the mission statements of like yeah. the Apache Software Foundation, yeah. and you know when GPL things come up and stuff like that. But it's not a extremely prominent way of thinking about it. So, I mean, I think, I think in summary, it's just like, it's proven to be a good way of doing software and I don't think it's that much of a hamper to uh, monetizing it. So it's uh, might as well be a good choice of how you go about doing things.
1: Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to want to gab with you in the, I think I mostly agree with that. I think the monetization has proven trickier, but, but we'll talk about that in a second. I think, that, as I like your reasons there on why people open source their own stuff. I've seen examples and worked with examples where sometimes you do it on purpose to almost set the market. Right? That I want to freeze out any of the competitive options. So let me open source this thing because there's another thing out there that is commercial. Mm. But let's say Kubernetes. Yeah, yeah. Did Google just open source that because they were nice people or because they also saw a chance to dominate a market? Yeah, I think it's the latter. So sometimes you do that to purposely freeze out competitors. Yeah, and
0: and 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 on that to interrupt you on that note, I, I should remind them that I sent this to them a long time ago. But I, I wrote some <laughs> uh, some some column for the Register about uh, uh, what's the deal. I keep saying what's the deal, but I don't know <laughs> how else to phrase it. But <laughs> but like, uh, why did Google open source Kubernetes? And and not mm-hmm. not only so much. That's more the re, why is a retroactive thing, but it's. Why do they keep caring about it? How does it fit in strategically? And and I think that's if I remember that's the conclusion that I came to is is it's basically a uh, there's a certain type of I don't I'm I'm sure this happens outside of the software world but in the software world imp- exactly I'm just repeating what you said with open source and to a limited extent free stuff like back in the VMware Hyper V days. There is there is a very real strategy of basically uh, negating someone else's advantage by giving up a little bit of your own, right? It's sort of the uh, you know if if none of us sure. can have this this EBIT, uh, if I can't have this EBIT, then none of us can have it. <laughs> so you just you just totally mm-hmm. neutralize it out, and I and I think in the case of of to generalize of platform things, if you're worried about someone getting a as we used to say control point. Uh, somewhere where they can extract a lot of value because they have the one unique closed source thing. There's something to be said for uh, neutralizing the monetary value of that by open sourcing it, so you can focus on other areas that are uh, more you're more capable of monetizing. And I don't know. It's I, I never reached this conclusion in the article, but I I guess that's what's up with Kubernetes. It's it's hard to say. There's a lot of virtuousness wrapped sure. up in it as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, you know, sometimes you also see kind of related to that, that you are trying to solve someone else's problem or demonstrate thought leadership. I mean, is there another reason that Lyft, a you know, car company, created Envoy and, and that it kind of complements Istio and these other things that it's demonstrating that, hey, smart people work here and we're solving problems and maybe we can help you solve some of these problems too. So there is a bit of a altruistic approach to that. I buy that. And that's why individuals who don't work for big companies also create open source projects and, and slog through issues and accept pull requests on weekends, like that is a thankless job for plenty of people, but they do it because they feel like they're solving a legit problem, and that's awesome. And some of those corporations seem to do that as recruiting. I remember almost the end of every Netflix post about one of their cool open source projects says, hey, if you want to work on this stuff, we're hiring. So you're doing it because it shows that this is a cool place to work. Therefore, we want talented people. So let's open source stuff. That's, I think Adrian Cockroft even admitted that at some point. that Much of this is almost a recruiting technique as much as anything. And then the final one that I see, I don't know if you see this too, Cote's the cynical side is sometimes you open source stuff that you don't want to deal with anymore. Like, Hey, let's open source this database, or let's open source this thing. By the way, we're not going to be primary on this anymore because we want to work on other stuff. So it's not, we're gifting this to the community. It's like, Hey, you guys now take this. And so, and again, that's fine, but it seems like that's an, another reason people do open source their software.
0: Yeah. 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 You know, And, and it's notable. So, so looking at, uh, the uh the chart that James governor pulled out of the top contributors to github and you know never mind the fine print of how it's generated i'm sure it's great and fine but if you if you look at it to kind of to what you're saying there there are uh well let's just throw out apache.org cuz it's sort of like that's like saying a number one contributor to open source is open source uh but anyways <laughs> if if you look at yeah. there actually are not that many companies on here or let me rephrase that There are a lot of companies on here that don't actually sell software, right? Or don't actually sell software traditionally. They might, in the case of Amazon, they might sell running software for you, right? Since it's public cloud. But you look at someone like Facebook. Like, uh, you know, I, I was writing in that rant I was mentioning earlier in my newsletter. Like, I guess you could argue that that Facebook sells advertising management as a service. So you could kind of think of them as a software, as a service in that respect. But, you know, someone – and then Alibaba, like, does – you know, it does retail and also, like, public cloud stuff and all manner of things. But it's interesting to think that a a lot of the companies that contribute a lot to open source, they don't care about monetizing the software. Like, they don't need to. Like, their interests – it kind of like with Netflix, and to read a little bit into it, I think part of – I would theorize that part of why Netflix open sources stuff is that genuine – old rainbow and sandal stuff of like, well, because the quality is going to be better, right? Like there is Netflix is, you know, this is, I, maybe I'm the only one in the world who thinks this, but like, I don't know, I wouldn't really call them a technology company. They're like a TV and movie company, right? They heavily use, this is the topic to be more grandstanding of my register column this month, but they use technology like wickedly and (laughs) like deeply, but they don't like send you DVDs, right? Like they don't sell you software. And so if you are one of those companies, as we used to say, an enterprise, like to a large extent, like open sourcing your stuff is probably a great idea. Now, maybe not if you're doing some sort of like, you know, customize insurance book analysis or things like that. Like there are proprietary things that maybe you don't want to open source. But like for the most part, if it's just about like uh, we're going to have a bunch of services and we need an efficient way for various uh, pieces of code we have to look up how to talk to a service like just open source, your registry thing, who cares? Like, Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, that might be another, you know, it's interesting. It would be interesting to kind of filter all this based on, we actually do have a lot of enterprise involvement in open source. And we just think of those enterprise companies as like tech companies nowadays when really like they're enterprise companies. So I guess if you're going to be predictive to test this theory out, you would say over the next 10 years, you would expect someone like Ford to be a big contributor, or other enterprises that uh, write a lot of software uh, or are setting themselves up to write a lot of software and be curious to see if they uh, open source that stuff.
1: No, that's a great point. You know, and to your point on monetization, I mean, I don't think Facebook ever will make money on React, uh, the web framework that everyone seems <laughs> right. to use now. And that seems fine to them. And so, I mean, I guess that question of monetization, I guess, the question was, do you care? At first plenty of folks, folks don't care to monetize. But when I look at who seems to have purposely wanted to make money on this. So let's assume that group of people, people who want to earn money on software, You know, historically it's been like, well, just do support. Like, hey, you use Redis, you use this database, you use this backup software, whatever, pay us to help support it. That seems okay. I just haven't seen a whole lot of companies make a giant business on support, especially because a successful open source project seems to have a good community around it. And so... Yes, you can maybe, you know, one hour response time SLA or things like that, but you can find tools, you can find expertise. It's not proprietary knowledge, it's public knowledge. So I, I haven't seen a ton of success with support. Some companies clearly make something on it. The uh, the one that seems more compelling to me is the packaging and updating. We just talked about patching. You know, my boss, Ian Andrews, has mentioned that like, we could almost continue to sell Cloud Foundry if all we did was just package it for people and update it. Like that alone <laughs> is worth so much for people. Compared to CIing it yourself and integrating it, and testing it, and deploying it, and rolling out like that is a giant pain point for any sort of complex software. Packaging is a big deal. Red Hat does that with Red Hat Enterprise Linux and others. So it seems like the the packaging story sometimes gets underrated, but that is a super valuable reason people actually would pay for software. Yeah, yeah,
0: um, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, you know, not 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 to yeah. uh, not not to uh, da- damage my own foot by trying to. Uh trivialize it right but the uh the curation of your enterprise i t stack is incredibly valuable <laughs> and and not only updating it but like you know we, we like to say we have an opinion aid stack and all of that, but just the whole the whole idea of this is the stuff that fits together, and these are the choices that you should have, and here's how you should run it and then to your point like as updates come out like here's here's updates for it and and uh and new features added to it it is you know i I don't think I remember in the two thousands there was to, to use the passive voice purposely, there was this idea of like patronage to make sure that open source was this common good around enterprises and you should just pay for it, which I think, I think a lot of the purely open source people, like they were kind of like hoping this would be the case. Uh, but there is something to be said for, um, you know you do need to have someone who curates this stuff together and and builds on top of it and and helps keep it updated and adds new features to it and you know i, I think I think you know there's there's several companies like like you uh you highlighted that w s o two like actually came out with some public figures, which is fun. It's always good to peer into that by by my read they they uh last year they should have had a two percent profit margin, which is good it's good good to eke that out on selling supposedly free things um and their trajectory looked nice and all that but uh you know, I I think I think this gets to to kind of like drag along to the next point. Um on the other hand, like there is closed source stuff you can still sell. Right. And and, and I think I think I think when you look at the bulk of open source, especially like in the space we operate in, right? So if you have someone to bring them up again, like Netflix or Lyft or whatever, open sourcing all these separate uh I don't even know what to call them anymore middleware thingies and services like there is something to be said for like a unified package of that stuff that you can easily install and have operational stuff written around it and taking it and uh packaging it up to be run and i think mm-hmm. i think i think what is this i i'm always thinking if i should say 5 or 10 years but over the last significant amount of years <laughs> i think there's a huge market acceptance of like Buyers saying, "I don't want to cobble all that stuff together. Someone else just do that, and and you can even have closed source things wrapped around it and just sell that to me, right? Like I know I should be doing all these things, but just help me get it up and running, and be the people that we basically outsource product management of this stack to, and that seems to be a viable business model that uh, buyers tolerate." Yeah, you just described
1: public cloud,
0: right? I mean, that's the, <laughs> fair enough. That's yeah. the
1: as a service delivery model is. I'm going to deliver this open source, whether it's a Postgres database or it's a messaging engine or whatever, I'm going to deliver it as a service. I'll take care of packaging and updating. I might even add some proprietary extensions, which companies do for regular software too, right? Pivotal or Confluent with Kafka or others. Is you add some other value or you have professional services, but as a service seems to be the way that many companies, especially in the cloud have said, this is our contribution to open source. We're going to actually make it easier to use. So yeah. you don't do assemble this stuff yourself, maintain it. Updated. And that, again, seems to be fairly successful, at least for the mega vendors. I don't know how much a small, thing. you know, MongoDB as a service somewhere, the rabbit as a service, or their Kafka as a service, or those actually making money. I don't know, but that seems like yet another way you could monetize and simplify a bit.
0: So, so then, then maybe, maybe to kind of start to wrap up, I think, I think being at vendors, we're obsessed with this, the vendor strategy and all that kind of stuff. But I, I always, I think, I think, I think the, um, uh, the obvious other side of it is so, if if you're as I as I was saying a buyer or you're a regular organization, I think I think it is. It's always worth spending time thinking about like so. If I use this open source stuff, like what I don't even know what the, I'm not going to suggest what the answers are, but like what are the questions I should have when I'm sourcing this stuff? Like h- as a historic example, dating my knowledge of programming uh, you know, maybe when struts 0.8 came out, it was worth wondering how long is this thing going to be around? <laughs> like if I'm, if I'm going to, as, as you can decode from URLs that you can still see, there's, there's a fair amount of that still running around. So it's proven to be like a long term, strategically valuable thing for uh people to choose to use. But there probably is like a good list of, uh, of questions to ask around open source things beyond the usual ones that we would care about. Like, is there a commercial company behind it? Like, I mean, that's sort of like, sure. That's, that's a good question to ask. And then, of, but then that just begs the question of like, what's the long-term viability and quality of that commercial company, which is back to the regular things you would ask about software acquisition. But in your experience, beyond the obvious one of, of the, uh, the commercial company backing it, like what, what do you think people should look at when they're figuring out which open source things to use?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would probably, I don't know, two things jump out. I would look at the market and is the market starved for skills? Like if I can't find people who know mm, this that's thing, a good one. I don't care how, I don't care how good the tech is. I'm going to 10 years from now, it's going to be even worse. So if I can't find people who know it, it doesn't matter how brilliant the tech is. I probably should pass on it. And then, Second one, I think, is look at the extensibility of it. Is this thing, do I have to go into the guts of the source code to make a small change? Or does it have a sort of extensibility model that says, yeah, let's say, again, example, Cloud Foundry, I want to bring Haskell as a programming language. Do I have to actually change Cloud Foundry? Or is there a way that that just bolts onto an architecture like we do with Buildpack? So the answer is yes. So is this thing built to purposely let myself extend it so that it has a longer life and I don't have to fundamentally recompile the software every time I want to make incremental changes, or is it just one big kind of monolithic ball of mud that if I had to take ownership of, because that company went out of business or something, I would have to literally know everything to function with this thing.
0: So I look
1: at extensibility. I would look at skills. If I can't feel comfortable with those two things, I would pass.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the skills is a good point. I think it's, it's interesting in the, uh, uh, in the open source conversation, that's always about the, uh, the role of individuals, comes up over and over again, right? Like we started off with that. It's a good morale booster and people want to, uh, people want to work on open source things. And the point you raise is good is like, well, you're going to have to have programmers that you hire using and working on this stuff. So you should make sure there's ones you can hire that know it. (laughs) So, so the, the role of, uh, the role of people and skills, uh, obviously always very critical in, in these things. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think back when I used to, talk to people about this and advise them. Like the one thing I was always trying to build heuristics around was the, I don't know, I guess like, as I was alluding to in my, my leading questions, like the long-term viability and stability of it, which is sort of a chicken and egg problem, right? like the open source project will have long term viability if a lot of people use it, and a lot of people will use it if it has long term viability <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so so at some point i mean and 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 in the history of various open source things, that's why there are um important moments, for example, with linux when i b m and Oracle in the early two thousands were like, yeah we're doing it we're we're going to run our stuff on top of it and then later s a p um and so Sometimes you just have to uh, invent the egg or the chicken or whichever one on your own, like in some Jurassic Park <laughs> lab, I guess. Uh, but there, I think I there's think probably more organic things. And if I followed – I bet an interesting thing to follow would be like the last five or ten years of JavaScript frameworks because there's probably a good – like we should assign the Red Monk people to go do this. This seems like their bag. But it would be interesting to see like what what are three things you would describe about the five or so JavaScript frameworks that came and went and like what what caused their rise and then their their plateau of productivity and then their fall uh, for each of them and it, it would be an interesting thought exercise of like and therefore when you're selecting open source things to use here's how you initially select things and when you start to end of life your use of some open source thing and i don't know what those characteristics are but it definitely i think and this goes back to my joke about like the way that i've noticed that you fix most all IT problems is to actually fix them (laughs) or actually do them is, uh, that seems like another thing that's particularly important with open source because there are so many options and you don't have, uh, money to use as, as leverage, but it's good to actively manage the portfolio they're using and pay attention to the viability and the capability of the product. So it's good to, to kind Mm -hmm. of keep an eye on how, uh are are uh, is is this cheese smelling to use a very old metaphor for it and uh now that that may seem like some sort of gloom and doom thing, but i think I think having more options and having the ability to accurately ask that question and having all these public sources whether it's github or other things to kind of get a sense of how popular and vibrant an open source community is i think on the whole uh open source wins that sort of uh i don't know capability that you need over closed source things.
1: Yeah, I mean, your JavaScript example is both great but but awful because those <laughs> frameworks seem to change every six months, Yeah. right? Now, you almost wonder if we do a callback to the very beginning of this podcast was we talked about dev evangelism or advocacy, and you almost wonder, again, you'd have to research and see, like do the companies who sponsor open source and have good dev, ad, dev advocacy programs help to build out that community up front so you don't have to same chicken and egg is hey, this is really cool tech. No one's using it yet. We need to do proper advocacy for it. That's what builds the community, keeps it healthy but again i have to fund those advocates yeah. so you know do some of those projects have a better life because advocates are actually building a community out not sure but those are all things i'd probably keep an eye on when i'm picking an open source tech to bet on
0: yeah yeah for sure well all right i think i think that's a good check-in on, on yeah. the way of open sourcing i mean if i were to summarize it just to go back to what i was saying is like open source is pretty awesome there it's pretty much impossible to argue uh that that it's a bad idea and isn't beneficial and indeed uh should be like top of the list of of things you think about when you're figuring out how to how to manage your it and select things and criteria that you have which which isn't to say that it it doesn't win 100 percent of the time so to speak uh but it is uh it's normal it's it's sort of like uh you know at, at least here in Austin. I don't know how it is in Seattle, but you can drink the tap water. It's fine. We don't need to speculate about the health of it. Uh, that's true. That's a weird analogy. I guess, but if you're going for,
1: I thought you're going with a raw water analogy, which would have been more exciting to talk Mm. about. There you go. There you go.
0: But uh, as always, this has been pivotal conversations. If you want to get all the most recent episodes and find the RSS feed, I mean, you can search around and wherever you listen to this stuff, but uh, if you go to soundcloud.com slash pivotal conversations, you can find uh, all those episodes and other information. And about every Thursday, uh, we post the uh, the show notes, and there'll be those links that I was alluding to over at pivotal.io/podcast, and you can find our other podcasts there, uh, Pivotal Insights, and also uh, that moment, which is which is a, a higher level podcast about how people have uh, encountered moments where they need to change and things like that. And I saw we were nominated for some podcast award over at the uh, the Shorties for that moment. Yeah. That's- it's a big I, deal. So, you know, if you like that podcast, you should go vote for it. I think you can vote once a day or something crazy, some sort of internet democracy. I don't know how that works out. But uh, I went over there and voted for it because it's it's a good podcast. There's I I remember one that I liked a lot. They had uh, someone from Domino's talking about uh, you know how how you can order from your wrist and things like that. And equally, the uh, there's been a lot of good episodes of Pivotal Insights recently. If you if you've been frustrated at the lack of hearing uh, Richard Nye's voice, there's plenty of good voices to hear over there. So you should uh, check that one out as well. And uh, I don't know. I'm Cote C O T E in Pivotal. Wh- I mean in in Twitter. Where, who who are you uh, over on Twitter?
1: Yeah, you can find me at @r_seroter r s e r o
0: t e r. See there you go. We'll start the we'll start the new year out with some shameless self promotion, and then we can just not do it for the rest of the year. So so we feel, you know, feel <laughs> uh, less less sully, as it were. Uh, so with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye bye.